Hello and welcome to another episode of the First Time Founders Podcast, the show where we talk about how to take a business from nothing and grow it into something meaningful. Today we're speaking to Steve Phillips. Steve's really well known in the UK hospitality sector as a leading operator, a guy that founder or corporate operators bring in to help them scale up operations from a handful of sites into national or regional chains. Steve started his career as a chef and he's worked his way all the, all the way through the ranks so he understands really intimately how to do site selection, how to package product, i.e. food and drink offerings to make money and delight customers, how to recruit and retain people, how to implement systems. There's almost nothing that Steve doesn't know about how you can mess up a restaurant operation as a first-time founder in that sector. Now, I'm sure many people watching or listening are going to be like me and love the idea of owning their, uh, their local restaurant or bar. So in this episode, I had some fun putting some concepts to Steve and, and seeing if he could help me guarantee success when I do take over my local place uh, to provide beer and pizza to the masses. He almost talked me out of it like any good industry veteran. He knows just how easy it is to go wrong as a first timer wading into what might seem like a glamorous sector. So if you're tempted to do the same, make sure you listen to this episode and for God's sake, reach out to Steve before you put your life savings into whatever it is you're thinking of starting. Enjoy the episode. Steve, welcome to the First Time Founders Podcast. Thank you for doing this. No worries. Glad to be here. Good to catch up. Yeah, no, it's awesome. And we've only been doing this podcast for a while, but most of the um, most of the people that have been coming on are either B2B software founders or uh, purchasers from founders. Quite a few people in hospitality, and of course, as we'll get onto, that's your background. But this is a special appearance because you're, um, you're here to talk about something a little different. You're both a founder yourself now, which we can get into. Yeah. But actually, we're going to talk about what it's like to be a hospitality founder, and in particular, where hospitality founders go wrong. So before we dive into that, would you mind telling people a bit about sort of who you are, where you come from, and how you've ended up doing what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah, great. Um, so I'm uh, Stephen Phillips, Steve Phillips, to people that know me well. Um, as you get older, you start using your long name, right? It's a bit <laughs> weird. Um, and yeah, hospitality of my whole life, really. So 30-odd years, um, very typical hospitality story. I, you know, I sat, I remember sitting in school, looking at the work experience. And in those days, it was a Rolodex, right? You had to sort of go through and pick what card you were going to do so random um and i just remember thinking don't want to be behind a desk um and there was this cooking thing in a hotel and i was like well that that sounds like a bit more fun so yeah, yeah from that part-time job then a full-time job one of the things i as a non-uni attending person i love to tell is that i um it's a bit, bit jeremy clarkson i'm afraid but i i left um did my last gcse exam went home packed my bags moved into the staff quarters of that of that hotel that day um, and went full-time the next day. Um, and thankfully, touch wood, I've never been out of work since. Um, so I've just, I've just always uh, stayed in hospitality, carried on as a chef, went to Cafe Rouge in the really early days um, when it was owner-operated, the original Pelican Group, Karen Jones, etc., um, and opened um, their Hartford branch as a chef. Um, transition front of house there again we'll probably come on to it but met some amazing people that gave me amazing opportunities um still friends today this is the late 90s now um early 2000s and uh went into frankie and benny's again in its sort of heyday i think i joined at 
sort of site 70 opened the branch in Stevenage, which was one of their first sovereign restaurants at the time, um, and went on to be a, a big success for them. Um, the, the, the restaurant was fantastic and was was uh, was a real sort of um, example of what Frankie and Benny's was back in the day, before it went very different, let's say. Um, <laughs> I did eight years there and that's where I transitioned from a manager to an area manager and a sort of senior area manager and that kind of thing. And I went to GBK in the, um, in the time where the Nando's guys had just brought it. So again, very people focused business, um, great founders. Um, they were doing a, a sort of semi turnaround job at that point. Um, did a startup, uh, with Levi roots and his business partner, um, which was um, uh, uh, very exciting, but very, very <laughs> challenging and very different, but gave me a lot of uh, backbone. And as, as, as his founder um, partner used to say, um, gave me a rhino skin that I probably <laughs> didn't quite have by then. Um, then we did a, uh, went to Basaba, which by that point was a 20-year-old business and very much a local Thai uh, XL, uh, Alan Yao business that, that had, had, you know, sort of really lost its way, tried many times to get outside London and expand. And it was in a bit of a mess. So that was a bit of a turnaround job with a new, with a new, um, exec team. Um, and then on to Marigami. Um, uh, so, uh, Toridol kept easier partnership and, and Toridol, uh, the brand owners that have got sort of over 800 Marigamis across the world, um, at, at sort of 12, 1500 sized uh, estate of other brands as well and stock exchange listed in japan so big big plc that decided to come to london and and, and launch their very famous and very uh, admired brand um from japan um i've been doing that for the last three years um right up until this very point where i'm about um nine ten days officially away from becoming uh uh, some people are saying crossing to the dark side and becoming a consultant, like the world needs more of us, right? <laughs> a, a found a founder consultant. So this is your this is your first first business, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, well, you know, as usual, uh, a couple of things that that um, gave me a bit of a, a backbone of income to make the leap um, are happening, and um, what I didn't want to do. It's a bit typical of me, I suppose, but I didn't want to just just you know, set up a generic email, become a become a consultant and see what happens. I thought if I'm going to do it, I'll do it relatively properly. Um, and, you know, we'll start it as if it's, it could it could be a, um, hopefully, um, you know, r- relatively decent sized sort of practice one day maybe. So using people that, you know, to collab with at the moment that I know from the industry and see, see how that pans out. What sort of services will you be delivering um, through the new vehicle, Steve? The, the reason I ask is obviously for the rest of this conversation, I'm going to get into shamelessly ex- extracting pro bono consulting advice from you for my benefit and then for the benefit yeah. of those listening in. So what sort of things will you be advising clients on in the new business? Well, I think that my bread and butter is obviously operations. Um, but I think where I'm relatively uniquely placed as, a, as an operator is that um, I really understand food. I mean, obviously operators do, but I understand it on a foodie level. I understand it on a, um, uh, I don't want to say molecular. I wasn't that kind of chef, but, you know, I, I understand it on a, on a, on a process based level. Um, and 
you know, I, 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 I sort of get flavor profiles and I can put together a dish still myself, that kind of thing. So, you, you know, I, I was hot, I was chef trained, hospitality trained. So I think the food side of things, menu creation, flavor profile, product, you know, I've been called a product guy by bosses in the past, I think is a big thing for me. Um, but then the other unique elements, I guess, or relatively unique is that, um, in the, in the opportunities I've had, I've worked on quite a lot of hospitality um, technology. I'm, I'm definitely not a technology brain, but I kind of know how I want it, something to work and, and things to talk to each other. Um, so I do a lot in that in that sort of hospitality tech stack space, and I've sort of built that um, you know with some very clever people, much cleverer than me, in um, in Marigami and in some other businesses. Um, and then your bread and butter, you, you know people, operations, SOPs, labor, costs of sales, so on and so forth. But then I think, I've, you know, I work with some great people over the years. So I've, I've definitely got some collaboration with some training partners, with some marketing partners, um, commercial partners, finance partners, etc. So I'd like to think with my network, I can, you know, I can bring um, the whole shop to, to somebody. And I think in particular, I really got a passion for, um, you know, uh, owner operators, people trying to find a way using my sort of 30 odd years of experience to save themselves a whole load of pain and energy and effort and time, you know, just just tap it. It's, it's that I'm seeing it already. It's that classic consultant thing. Okay, our day rate is, you know, reflects our experience and what we've done. But boy, can we cut a lot of time and pain away from, you know, what, what you might have to go through. You just you just can't you know it's hard to bottle that experience right yeah i mean time and pain they're inherent to the to the founder journey as a lot of these new operators will will, will find out I, okay yeah. steve so like all uh good software guys that have had at least their first exit of whatever size i obviously desperately want to be a restaurateur so for the <laughs> <laughs> this is where i talk you out of it right <laughs> yeah yeah do your best so right I want to open a beer and pizza joint, my hometown Brentwood in Essex on the east side of London. Um, let's let's talk through all the things I'm going to cock up <laughs> as a as a non hospitality, non food, non restaurant guy. I think I understand operations because I've delivered software to operators for the last ten years, but I know I don't actually understand operations. But just for the benefit of our audience, humour me. Can we can we go through and sort of as we were preparing for this call, we talked about some of the areas where you specialise, and you've mentioned some of them in the setup to this. You know, product, financials, location, all that kind of stuff. Um, can we talk through like an illustrative concept and basically just tease out where people get it right and get it very very wrong, and cut around this this sort of idea? If someone and let's say I'm going to open mine in Brentwood, but maybe someone listening wanted to open theirs in Manchester or somewhere else. What's the first thing they'd need to think about? What's the first irrecoverable mistake people make when they wander into hospitality and try and set up a business? (laughs) I I do have a, a, first of all, would I open a pizza beer place in, in, in Brentwood? Um, I'm not, not talking about Brentwood by the way. Um, but, Probably not because because it's just you know it's stacked against you, right? Um, Talk, I mean, let, let, I mean, expand, I, expand on that, Steve, because you're probably yeah. right. That's why I'm having some fun with it. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I mean, I mean, I as in the average Joe, not necessarily. Um, yeah, myself would I if I if I was given the opportunity, but um, I think the, 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 there's that saying of 
if you've got a, if you've got a bucket of cash to open a restaurant, why don't you put it in a bin, set fire to it for a while, stamp <laughs> on it, and see how much you got left? You might have more, right? Um, uh, you might get a better return. Um, but look, I, I, I think the first thing is experience, and, and it goes back to back in the day. Um, uh, you know, when I was sort of coming up through the ranks, I worked for a few uh, owner operators of pubs, um, and they they that was the thing then, right? It, bankers made some money and opened a pub yeah um and it was it was a big thing and uh, maybe pubs were a bit more available i think probably at the time than than they are now but no experience i mean it's just it it, so going back to the point of everything stacked against you if you then go into that with no experience because you think your experience is as as a customer um i mean it's when you just put that down on paper, it's the craziest <laughs> statement ever, right? Why would so, you do let's, it? Let's unpack that then. So let's say that I persuaded you to be my co-founder. We're well financed. And I say, Steve, I know that I don't have the skills to do this myself. Come in, you know, um, you can have the equity because I'm going to set fire to my money if I do it without you. Okay, so now you're, you're, you're like, all right, Rob, fine. You pay for the whole thing. We're going to own it equally. You might even be the majority owner. So now we've solved the experience point. What what's the next thing you're thinking about when you're thinking, Rob? I'm not going to let you drag me down. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean site selection. Uh, you know, forget even at this point the brand or, or the idea or the concept, right? Um, because invariably, um, you know, average average brands will do better in great sites, um, and it takes a really really good concept to do well in a poor site. Um, so for, for, for me, site selection, and now that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, um, prime high street next to Starbucks, um, but it's got to suit the business and it's got to suit the economics of the business. I think that's the other thing that, that people get, that people get wrong. They sort of take the site and then start working the rest of the economics backwards. That's so in this example, you might say to me, Rob, I don't give a shit that you live in Brentwood. We're not starting a restaurant in Brentwood just because it's convenient for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but also if it was Brentwood, does it need? Does it? You know, is I know Brentwood a little bit, but is it on the high street or is it uh, tucked down one of the side roads or um, you, you know, is it on the a, a, approach road from the M25 rather than right in the middle of town? That kind of thing. I think you got to you got to you got to suss all that out. But what, what I mean about the, the economics is that. If you've got a really low margin product, which of course, if you did PC, you probably would be in, a, in the better side of that, then you, you, uh, to a degree, you've got a bit more to play with in terms of how prime you can go. If you're doing high protein, a steak restaurant, um, you know, you're, if you're then going to go and pay for prime high street location, then you're, you're they probably just just don't stack, you know. Um, can can you can you give a worked example of that, Steve? Because I know that you thought you toyed with taking a site for a, a coffee concept, didn't you? Do you want to talk people through how you thought about that property and whether the economics st- stacked up? Yeah, it was opportunistic, really. So it's it's near where I live, um, and there's um, I live in Bow in East London. There's a lot of building going on. It's right on the very edge of the Olympic, um, uh, what whatever they call it. Uh, the, the uh, 
the follow-up yeah, it's um, like the regeneration zone, regeneration right? project whatever i can't remember what they call it legacy legacy something or other so it, it's just getting out to to the edge of bow which is a weird weird, weird place bromley by bow is a weird place it's sort of 15 minutes from nowhere um but very close to everywhere being in zone two um but i can't get a coffee and we might uh, uh, you know first of all problems i get it but um <laughs> You know, I have to walk across to McDonald's, which is very close, or go to the Costa machine in the Tesco's. You can't get a coffee. So they've just whacked up a load of apartments, and they're all, um, most of the, the, the apartments going up are, um, are, you know, built by um, not for, not for profit organizations. So there's a Guinness um, Foundation, Pension Foundation, that's, that's just whacked up a big estate. So therefore, you don't, they're not institutional landlords. You know, they don't, they don't understand. Um, you know how to play that game um and what made sense though was that this coffee shop this potential coffee shop was on the way to the to the tube i knew i walked past it every day i could do a very very i sat there one day for most for most of the day did some work on my laptop outside uh sitting on a bench um and just people counted and just very really? quickly worked out that you know you only need to sell 70 80 90 cups of coffee um in the morning commute and about 50 cups of coffee in a sort of longer stretched out coming home time um to make it work uh, assuming all the other economics were in place so to you know assuming that i was going to get handed a, a shell that i could use and so on and so forth um so and i knew what the cost of sales would be on it and i knew roughly what the labor would be on it of course so um, I knew what the rent needed to be by working it back like that. Um, as it turns out, the, because of the story I told you about the um, the landlord, effectively that not that that site was was just not going to be useful for anybody because it just wasn't finished correctly. It didn't it didn't have the right um, uh, electricity, didn't have the right gas, didn't have the right HVAC, didn't have the right extra, um, uh, heating um fire suppression etc etc it was just crazy at what you know so basically it was 200 250 300 grand in before you got to building it uh, you know um and actually i know that they had an offer on it before from an independent um now if i wasn't experienced and i didn't have people i could draw on to help me kind of come to that conclusion i i, I hate to think that somebody could potentially sign that that lease because the rent looked great, right? And then realize they've got 300 grand's worth of, of just getting it to a standard that they can even fit it out. Um, to does, pay that hap- does that happen often? Because I like to think that wouldn't happen to me because I'd have the brains to call someone like you and say, please take some of my money to stop me losing more. <laughs> but I'm assuming that's partly because I'm a second time founder and I've made so many mistakes that it's knocked at least some of the cockiness out of me. I guess people that haven't had that experience could easily wade in and sign a lease, right? As the first thing they do. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think they absolutely could, and um, <laughs> and I think so there's bad. obviously, I mean, not not definitely not talking about all of them, right? But there's there's definitely also some, you know, not not fantastic contractors out there that that, that might you know might kind of you know not do their homework, um, and, and you know, once that lease is signed and you're in and you're discovering problems. Yeah, that's game over, right? That's, that's that's you're in a mess to start with. So, um, look, it's back to experience. You know, I'm not. I've, I've had. I've obviously been exposed to property stuff, but you know, I was able to pick the phone up to 
a very useful chap um and say look can you can you, can you do me a favor here and, and of course you know it's very very nice to actually do me a favor as well so that sort of hour hour and a half that he spent on it um on a couple of calls and a few emails for me stopped me making an enormous mistake that's unbelievable okay so we know site selection is critical and site selection is what drives your sort of opportunity through your football. And then depending on what your product is, that informs the margin profile. That makes sense. So generally, would you advise someone to have a concept in mind and then go and look for a property for it? Or as a, as a first time hospitality founder, does it make more sense to find a site and then think about what the right concept is for that site and if the economics pencil or is there no right answer? I don't think there is a right answer, actually, but um, because I think people are definitely successful doing it both ways. Personally, I think is the, is the best way I could answer it is that, you know, as an operator over the years, you end up just having a hundred ideas right in your head um, of things that you think you could do. So I, th- I think, you know, if I ever went down that road, I would probably be looking for a site, and then something would trigger, and you know that idea you've always had for that, that would work there. I mean, the coffee shop, for example, you know, I'd never thought really of a coffee shop, but as soon as I saw that, it was just, you know, it was a coffee shop. And then, I, you know, my my take on it really was that it could have been um, a bit sort of Vietnamese biased, um, yeah. bit, of a, bit of an Asian twist. Therefore, you can do something a bit more exciting with the simple food offer and, uh, you know, rather than just crusty sandwiches and whatnot. So it sort of evolved in my head after I, after I saw the site, whereas, you know, um, I think we all, I think, I don't know what it is about, about us, right? But I think we all, we all love a sports bar as crap as they normally are. So, you know, I've got this kind of sports bar idea. I've probably had it since I was 17. Um, so, you know, again, the right site, you you know, might, might drive that. Um, what would the right site have to be like for a sports bar to be less crap than normal? (laughs) I don't know, 28 years in, I haven't found it. So um, I, I think it's probably not out there. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously, there's a lot, there's a lot, a lot naff about a sports bar, but at the same time, there's, there's, I think we all pine for a really good one, right? We're really good. Well, all the pubs have turned into restaurants, haven't they? It's, it, it, there's, it does feel like there's a, a bit of a void, like just, just consumer side. You know, you want to go for a pint, uh, yeah, there's not really that many choices. So many yeah. of these pubs now are turned into restaurants to try and open your wallet a bit wider. It makes sense as to why they have to do that, but it does leave a bit of a gap in your sort of social opportunities. Yeah, yeah, no, I think so. Um, I mean, again, I think it's I think a site like that is always going to need to be high foot foot high footfall. Um, it's you know it's going to need to be where there's lots of people. Clearly, you know. Um, uh, I mean, actually, uh, in a, in a in a way, I think um, yeah, London's doomed for something like that. It's just all too expensive. Um, but I think other cities, um, UK and certainly abroad, can make that work. Um, and we're also quite still quite biased here, right? We're sports fans in the UK, but when and I'm not. By the way, I'm terrible uh, at every sport, and I don't really watch very much of it. Um, so not um, com- competitive eating i bet you could throw down a hot dog or two yeah well yeah i, could, I definitely i definitely have, have been known to do that <laughs> um so yeah i think i think um I, I think if you can go somewhere where there actually there is so many sports where people are into that you don't have to just rely on football because i think football puts a lot of people off right for example but 
um, yeah, when you can really um, get that into so that, that again, is that is that actually more Europe? I was in Riga recently and it was when Riga were playing the Ice Hockey World Cup against Canada. It was electric, you know, absolutely mental. Um, but then as soon as the match ended, a football game came on and, as, you know, as soon as that ended, this was all a big square, screen in the square, something else came on um, from a different part of the country and different time zone and everyone stayed. If it was, you know, oh, the, so the football... Yeah, you know, every you talk about football in a park in the UK, the game's over, everyone runs off, right? Grabs a kebab, goes home. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And I guess America, of course, they have, what is it, like their big five sports or whatever. And and so when you think about the American sports bar and anyone that's travelled across the Atlantic and likes a drink, it's an experience many of us enjoy. I hadn't actually thought about the fact that they'll switch from baseball to basketball to NFL ice hockey sometimes those things are playing simultaneously on those crazy sort of multi-screen yeah. experiences i hadn't yeah. thought about the fact that in the uk you might have a bit of cricket and the football it it's, be, just maybe. Not, it's not yeah. the same is it yeah yeah and also those those games right their day that their days out in the states you know i've been to a baseball game there and you know you start looking at the watch game when's this over that, see, it's interesting isn't it because even as you talk about that you're sort of flitting between operator and customer persona it's so easy, isn't it, as a potential founder to overlook what the likely customer journey is actually going to be and realistically how many customers are there that match the thing that you've idealized in your head. Should we get on to That probably brings us on to product yeah. then, doesn't it? Um, when I say product in hospitality or founding hospitality business, like what does that encompass for you? Is that mainly about the food offer? For me, yes, because, you know, I've never, I've, it's, again, weird in hospitality is that, we're, we're, you know, you whack in there, bars, drink, food, hotels, accommodation, but we all very, we all move in very different circles, right? We kind of give the same experiences and sort of understand each other's language. I, I liken it to a, um, in Asia, lots of countries will speak very different dialects, right? Um, as I'm sure most people are aware, but so, you know, you might go to, I, I know the Philippines well, so you might go to the Philippines and the main, the main um, language actually is, is Tagalog and then English, but there's so many dialects there, right? So where they won't understand each other, um, you know, tens, tens if not hundreds. Um, and I think it's the same in hospitality. We just don't, we, you know, host bar people don't understand food people, food people don't understand hotel people. It, you know, you sort of come from the same place, but you don't get it. So I think that's the first thing. And and for me, it's it's definitely. It's definitely food when it comes to product, um, and I've, st I've stuck by a really simple rule um, in my mind, um, and that's that if you if you as a customer feel that you can go home and put together that dish you've just eaten in in I don't know twenty minutes, half an hour, no problem at all. You're not daunted by it, where to start. You're not wondering where you might get the ingredients um and you feel like you've got enough skill to pull it off i think as a restaurant you've just served a dish that you should not be serving um, that, that's interesting that's quite that's quite punchy yeah. but it makes sense do you want to unpack that a little bit yeah i mean look i i i i, I call it a come back and get me dish right um you, you've got to want to go back to that place because one it, it's moreish, you know. You want more of it. You want to go back, but two, um, 
you you don't even know how to begin to replicate it right so so i think i think that's the thing and i think over the years um take certain pasta brands for example um you know in the sort of mid 2000s you know some nice ravioli with a really tasty sauce a bit of grated parmesan um and some fried sage that you know that was a bit like whoa what you know what is this it's not it's not spag bowl it's not carbonara with cream um <laughs> it's you know something different right so um but these pasta guys kind of got caught out i think by the supermarkets you know producing fresh pasta producing little tubs of fresh sauce um you know actually i can just air fry my sage um and I can make this look very nice. Actually, thanks to people like Jamie Oliver and, and whatnot, I, I can even give it a crack with, you know, he's shown me how easy it is just to roll a bit of fresh pasta and make it myself if I want to do it for my friends. So uh, I, I think these guys got caught out by that. Why would you go to said pasta brand, pay 14, 15 pounds for a bowl of pasta, which you know you can do, you know, you, you okay, it's a bit more than Monday night dinner, but you know you can do it. Um, and I think there's lots of brands, sadly, some of which I've worked for, um, that just have just not realised that, um, and they've just just lost their way, right? And I hadn't thought about that, but it's true actually. Even though I'm not much of a cook, I, I like I like to eat, and I consequently shop quite a lot. And it's true as I walk down the aisles, even if I don't buy the items, it's building a level of familiarity familiarity with things that used to be sort of the preserve of restaurants and you're right it's 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 harder and harder to push me into a place of novelty and excitement as I roll my eyes down the menu even if I don't pick those items I would imagine that's the same for most of the general public that, that would yeah. make up a customer base yeah and it's great right it's absolutely fantastic when you, when you think about it because you know UK is a culinary hellhole. Was was a culinary hellhole, right? It was terrible. We, we we couldn't cook, and we didn't have much identity to our food, and so on and so forth. And actually, my my opinion is that a consequence is we still don't really have a lot of identity to our food. But what we've done is very typical UK thing and very typical hospitality thing, which I'm very also passionate about. Is we've just embraced all these other different cultures and potentially done some of this food better. Right. I mean, there's, there's definitely trains of thought that um, you go to somewhere like Dishoom and you're getting Bombay cafe style Indian food as good as you would get in Bombay, if not better. Pizza pilgrims I love as a pizza. You get a Neapolitan pizza as good as you might get in, in Naples, if not better. Um, so I believe that UK, especially London, is, is um, you know, fantastic at, at drawing that identity out. Now, they've had to do that because because we've been so well educated over the years and the supermarkets are pushing us and so on and so forth. So again, brands can't be lazy or restaurant concepts can't be lazy. You can't offer something that, um, you, you know, you can easily replicate or everyone's doing or, or, or it's not, not to a good standard. So and look, it can't be every menu on the item. You know, everyone could probably deep fry some chicken wings and put some nice sauce on it and it'll be decent. But you know, take the chicken wing brands, you know, they're spending hours, you know, tumbling, marinating, um, you know, in, ensuring that these um, uh, these wings are, are, are kind of soaked and, and um, you know, left in the best possible condition, double frying, etc. Doing all the stuff you probably wouldn't bother doing just to eke out the 
10, 15% improvement to what you might get at home. So again, you start going, I've got to go back to X wing shop um, and get this, you know, get this amazing Buffalo wing. Whereas we could go to Tesco's, get some wings, slap them in a fryer, put some Frank's hot sauce over it. You, you know, you're, you're 60, 70% of the way there, but it's not, it's not enough, right? That's so true. Okay, so you've talked me out of Rob's beer and pizza in Brentwood. I, I, I'll focus on on software and services. Well played. Imagine <laughs> that I was an experienced chef. Do you have to talk those men and women off the ledge sometimes and almost being too creative and assuming the customer has a level of discernment that they don't have and aren't willing to pay for? I'm assuming it's just as dangerous, maybe not just as dangerous, but pretty dangerous going too far the other way, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> that yeah. sounded like that was a tone of resignation in your voice. <laughs> it's so complicated, I think, actually. Look, chefs, I was very much, a, I'd call myself, I'd, I'd split them to two types, creatives and productions. Um, now, that that sounds unfair on production chefs, and I put myself in that camp to start 100% put myself in that camp, be uh, a joke to think of anything other than that. But what I mean by that is that these are process guys that get food, get flavor, but absolutely know how to do it at bulk, on speed, and make money. Right? Right. I think that's the big thing. You know, get a good GP, um, get an amazing product that can be replicated, can be done fast, and, and we'll, we'll still make good margin. Sorry, so good good GP, so good gross good, profit, right? Like don't be cooking profit. things where there's not enough profit to cover the operating costs of the Exactly. Restaurant. And then you have the creatives, and these guys are incredible, right? But they are artists. And they are artists in the sense of every other artist cliche that you can think of. <laughs> um, you know, they're temperamental. Um, they're passionate about what they're doing. They don't think business first, um, and so on and so forth. Um, but of course, they produce the most amazing plate of food that you've ever seen. And I think it's really rare and well publicized, of course, that um, it's rare that you get people with the, even the right even with a decent balance of those skill sets. And I don't quite know what is the balance. Maybe maybe it's actually a bit more, you know, maybe it's 55% creative, is 45% production is perfect. Um, but um, I think, yeah, I think that's the, I think that's the key to it. So again, whenever I think about anything that I might do, two people jump to mind. One is very creative. Um, and, you know, one of the best chefs I've ever worked with, known. Um, I mean, I'm, again, I'm talking, I'm not talking at Michelin level or anything like that. I'm talking of just coming up with, I had a concept and you needed to put some dishes together for me. Incredible. And the other, <coughs> excuse me, the other is Mr. <coughs> excuse me. Well, the other one is um, Mr. Process, right? He's just, um, he'll suss out, right? If we replace that with that, that that will get our margin in line, and it will be just as good. If we cook it like this and not like that, we'll we'll do it faster, and so on and so forth. Could they work together? Do you think? Could you build a founding team with those two individuals in in upper management or ownership, or do you think they'd kill each other? Uh, they can with with somebody looking after them. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But you couldn't put them in a room and, and say, "See you later. Uh, I'll I'll be back in an hour." <laughs> um, That's interesting. Okay, so let's imagine you were CEO of a new uh, casual dining concept. You're looking to scale up. You've decided you've got these kind of two brilliant, different but complementary pro- food product leaders. 
what are the other key roles you need to build around that or I guess or the key areas of competence I guess what finance people I mean it's finance sort of driven part you've sort of covered finance in a way I suppose haven't you is it people next um yeah look I mean just staying on finance for a minute I think you uh, the job that operators and the food people and probably everyone else does is so intense that if you've not got somebody counting the numbers um, and, you know, keeping coming back and keeping you in line, um, I think that's a bit, uh, you know, that it can be finished before it's started. So I think that is important. Now, whether that's just a great outsourced accountant or whether that's um, a, a proper um outsourced or in-house CFO or whatever else. It depends what size you're going for, right? But clearly, um, you, you right-size it to the business, but but I think that's that's enormous. And, that and is I, key. I, and there are yeah. some good fractional finance directors, CFOs, aren't there, hovering around the restaurant sector? And, I know a few. And companies and services, um, et cetera. So, and I've seen that, I've seen that on, on, on uh, both sides of the coin, I'd say. Um, you know, really, really tightly managed, um, and uh, and therefore, you know, ultimately successful, and, uh, and maybe not so quite tightly managed, and and then actually, the operators love it for a while, but then as soon as someone wakes up, um, all hell breaks loose, right? And it, and then and then you start start making decisions that you really d- didn't didn't want to make or shouldn't have made in the first place. Mm. So I think that is an absolute key role, especially with what we talked about right at the start of this, is that. You're really talking about such small margins. So, you know, pay someone to make sure that at least happens. Um, <laughs> so, I think that I think that's key. Um, look, assuming that you've got the menu and you've got somebody that that, that, that is doing the, the food and drink side of things. Um, I mean, I'm going to say operator. I, I, I think I think we're the we're we're the master of all trades. Uh, sorry, the jack of all trades, and you know. Uh, by nature of the role um so you know most operators can do a bit of people they can do a little bit of marketing they can do you know certainly um you know do the service stuff they can they can write sops and things like that so i think i think the operator tends to um uh, be a key role and, and again i would say that if you're doing a startup and the operator doesn't want to do that stuff you've got the wrong operator Mass- massive red flag right like yeah, if they wanted yeah. to delegate everything Big time, you know, and uh, unfortunately, that's where operator consultants, um, you know, naturally come in, right? But they, I, I think, I think that's the point. Is that even if I went to a business and they didn't have that person, and they they want they wanted me to consult, but there was the, that person wasn't there to do it, I couldn't work with that business, right? Being being possible. Um, so I think I think that that's key. And then it depends. I think the next role then depends on really what you're going for. If you're going to scale. Um, and that's always the plan, and that's how you're funded. Um, then, for me, a, 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 a HR stroke people person, and when I say HR, I, I don't mean a policy person because you can you can buy policies, right? Or you can you know print them off the internet. You don't need that to get going. I mean, someone's going to drive your culture um, and and really look after people and 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 keep, you know keep everyone in check because again at the start you're making really tough decisions mm. and you're under loads of pressure if you can do that within a framework of what values you've agreed you're going out to, to achieve in the first place you just need that 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 culture person on your shoulder saying yeah but yeah but 
is that in line? Does that match what we're doing? What, what are some examples of, I mean, on a no-name basis, but can you, are any, do any examples pop to mind of where you've seen a business veer off course because of the absence of that cultural check? Um, not from the start, to be honest, I would say. I mean, Because the operator tends to have a handle on that, right? They intuitively know what a culture is supposed to be and they're strong-willed enough to sort of impose it on a small group. Yeah. Look, I mean, I've done two things from the start, which I, you know, which I can talk about. Um, Marigami from the start, and it was super important to us. I did a lot of the culture stuff from, from, from day one in terms of, you know, owning it. But we, we as a team, um, and with our, with Keith, our CEO, we did, you know, it was always a really important thing. In fact, it was one of the reasons that, that without even getting into what the business was and who they were, that, that I went to work for him. I knew Keith, I knew his values, I knew what he'd be going for. And sure enough, we sat down and we, we, we had that as a core thing. So we did it really, really well. And as soon as we knew that we had um, a bit of business on our hands, we brought in a head of people um, and, and, and she carried that on. Um, and I could talk about Levi's because it doesn't, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, <laughs> but in that, in that business, um, especially with a sort of, uh, you know, relatively well-known figurehead. Um, we didn't do an awful lot of, of people culture talking. We did lots more business talking, um, which was you know, mainly coming from his business partner. Um, and when times got tough, we certainly focused on margin and not on people. Um, and ultimately, I don't, I don't think it was, um, you could describe the culture there. I don't think you could say what, what it was, what it stood for. Um, how does that manifest in terms of sort of negative business impact is it is it you just end up with inconsistent customer experience yeah yeah i mean look there's a whole host of stuff going on there and you know two business partners that, that had different ideas of what the business should be in, in the first place but um uh, but yeah ultimately i think that 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 came down to um no one knew what they was working for i think that's mm. the, that's the key um and obviously a lot of people uh, felt they were working for this this sort of public figure that they that they recognised um, and knew, um, and actually that probably helped actually because that that, that at least that was something people could, um, you know, what they say tie your flag to right. Whereas um, in Marigami, the cause, the 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 direction, the idea, um, the um, the thing we were going after was always really clear, and people joined for that. You know, and that that also sifts out some people. Why would you want to? Why would you want to do that? For some people, if you just, I used to say in interviews, look, if you, um, you know, if you just want to come in, do your job, go home, um, it's probably not for you. And I, I say that with caution because I, what I don't want to do is I don't want to sound like that typical old school operator that says if you don't want to work seventy hours a week, then this is not for right. you. You know, that's not what I mean by that. Uh, that is quite toxic culture that we've unfortunately had in our industry for a while. But what I do mean is, is that I'm going to tell you to do something one way. And then the next day I'm going to tell you to do it another way. And then the next mm. day I'm going to tell you to do it another way. Cause I'm sussing this out with you. If you go and work for said other established 50 odd site brand, they're not going to do, they'll be lucky if they tell you to do two different things in a year. Um, so your life there is going to be far easier than your life here, um, but this is going to be really exciting, and we're going to be on a, we, you know, we're going to be on a roller coaster. Um, 
that's for some people it's not for others right what 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 type of people did that tend to appeal to like why did it appeal to them because i think a lot of people listening know that they need to hire for cultural fit they don't really know what that feels like and particularly if you're trying to start a hospitality business we don't really have the lever of pay no we don't um do you know what i think it, i think it just weeds out people that aren't really passionate about hospitality because actually right. everything i've just said is what hospitality stands for and what makes it special so if you if you've got you know if you've got negative feelings towards those kind of things that that we that we we stand for and okay it's it's accelerated in a startup then I think we've all met them, right? You're in hospitality, but you should probably be working in a bank. Yes. Um, you know, so that's, you know, that, and that, you know, it's, not, it's definitely no slight on the person. Of course it's not. But it, hospitality is so accessible and so easy to get into. I think some people get into it when they shouldn't. And then it's so, uh, I don't want to use the word trap, stickable, um, that it's hard to get out of. Um, as well. So actually, I think we retain people that we shouldn't necessarily be retaining a lot of the time. I think that's right. Like, it's quite easy to sort of hide as the average, just below par employee, right? And you can yeah. over time collect a ton of those yeah. people. I, I guess where you've got what feels like a recruitment crisis, you can understand why brands are settling for people that shouldn't really oh, sure. be there so does that mean that one of the key drivers of sort of success for a hospitality operator is finding some sort of unique and reliable talent acquisition yeah look and it's, and it's and it's luck as well right because where are where when you first start where are you in the um supply and demand curve um you know when we started marigami we were very much in the in the supply curve right we had jobs it was the middle of covid there was loads of managers out of work um you know we were always going to get um have a have a good opportunity you know i didn't need to use agents to start with right um but what it did enable us to do um which i think is probably once in a lifetime is run the recruitment process i've always wanted to run um first of all uh myself and Keith sat down and and this is where he's he always had great vision and we and understanding as well and we we kind of said look we think we're going to do you know we're funded to do 25 sites before we get on to before we get on to um you know more funding or or, or franchising um we don't know how this first site's going to go we've definitely got a bunch of other sites lined up why don't we all why don't we hire the first eight general managers straight away and, and the reason for that is you know most most ceos would go what um, <laughs> but what kind of what we what we got to is well look one's a general manager and they're on 100 percent of their salary and the second person is a senior deputy manager and they're on 95 percent of that of that salary so we're only it's only costing us five percent and the next ones are, uh, the next three are assistant managers and they're on 70%. So they're only costing us 30% each. And then you go all the way down to it and there's a bunch of people who just need to be supervisors and they may be 60%. So actually the true cost isn't seven extra managers. It's, it's the seven extra people. They're going to go and do 45 hours work a week in a, in a restaurant. So they're not costing you, um, you know, their 
wages. But at the same time, you've got um, great people or, or very high level people. And if you do go for a fast rollout, you can very quickly say, right, uh, as we did, open site two, four there, four there, open site three, three, three and three and so on and so forth. And that's 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 exactly how, what we did. So that, ena that enabled us to do this great process, which um, I, I laughed about because it was really drawn out, but it was fantastic. For, everyone had to do video applications. Um, and again, you, you, you know, a recruiter would say in a recruiting market, you're just going to put people off. Yep, you're absolutely right. You are going to put people off. Um, but, you, but anyone that's willing to do it is probably the people that I want. Um, so we made them do video applications um, and uh, I sat there in my bedroom in the middle of COVID reviewing hundreds. We had eight roles and I had hundreds of managers um, applying, um, again, un unheard of. And, um, and that, that turned into stage two, I can't remember exactly, but stage two, um, they, they had to submit... Um, some kind of food plan i think it was some sort of um what they think about hospitality food and so on and so forth stage three they had to do a cooking video so they had to cook their best dish um you know live and uh, not live in terms of uh, in front of us but they had to film it um there's criteria around um how fast it needs to be and so on and so forth um and you know i mean there was some amazing stuff in that you know one one guy that we hired um yeah dressed up as karate kid <laughs> Japanese business right um had his mum in the video as his sous chef it was brilliant right I mean that's amazing you know and there was loads of people that were polished hospitality professionals some people I knew um you know and it was it, of course people are gonna be awkward in front of everyone knows I'm not particularly comfortable in front of a camera but um yeah you know they're not they didn't have the passion to take it to the extra stage. They didn't have the extra drive to kind of go, well, what if I did this or what if I did that? And and some of the people we hired, I mean, they they they'll they won't thank me. For, they will thank. They know they know I talk about it. It's taking the Mickey out of them, but I mean, they produced a plate of trash, right? Um, <laughs> but they did it in such a good, fun way. Um, uh, that, you know, it's just great. And then we made them. Um, and we were now in, by this stage, we were in semi-open. If you remember the early years of, you probably won't, but I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back to you. The early years of 2021 was, was when it was really, really cold for like a week, snowing, yeah. super icy. Um, and uh, sort of January, February, we were we were getting, getting ready to sort of the final stage. And we split, we whittled them down to... 15 or 20 or something like that we split them into three groups um, and we made them work with each other so that was another test in there they were all go they were all applying for the same eight roles but we had 20 people that had to work as teams um you know to to help each other out they couldn't throw each other under the bus so if they did it was clearly going to stand out as a, as a problem um, and we made them do food tours so we made them construct a food tour to bring me and keith the ceo around london um on this food tour which then turned out to be um, eat out only. So then they had the extra complication of doing an eat out only food tour because of COVID in, in London. So we're walking around like a, you know, a dead borough market, you know, telling the police that we're out for essential food um, and, and all that sort of stuff. But they had to construct it, they had to put a story behind it. Um, 
uh, to work with each other, they had to physically take us on the tour as if they were a tour company. Um, and from that, we hired eight. That's unbelievable. You yeah. know what's interesting? I started my career as a corporate lawyer where they put crazy resources into finding the right kids. I mean, they made a mistake with me because I qualified and then promptly left because I should have been in sales and entrepreneurship from the beginning. I was a lousy lawyer. But we did a lot of group exercises to see how you performed in that situation against, like with your rivals. And then interestingly, I did a terrible job of originally kind of recruiting and managing for the Yapster because it was an eight year journey and I'd never run anything before. So for the first four years, I was terrible. For the next two, I was average. And then finally for the last two, I think I was okay because it was forced on me by COVID. And we had a multi-stage process exactly like you've just described with um, like tests for candidates because it turns out that what people say they like to do and are going to do is is not in any way representative of what how they'll behave when they turn up for a role, as you well know. And it's just really interesting that I've never heard a hospitality leader operator really talk about implementing a rigorous talent, a truly rigorous talent process, as you would have to in professional services or, you know, or technology where literally all of the value in the business is the code that the people write and the product that they build um i know you're self-aware enough to know that it, it obviously it's a slightly different recruitment market post-covid but people have got to try and find a way to imitate that haven't they i mean that probably after site selection is what it comes down to i don't want to put words in your mouth but it sounds like it yeah sure it's just it's just Close site, select, site selection and product, sorry. Yeah, I mean, you said product, right? Site selection product. Yeah. And then, then maintaining it is about not filling your business with people that don't give a shit. A hundred percent. And it, and, it, and like I say, we it was once in a lifetime that I was able to do that. Wow. Um, yeah, look, back... I you mean, can't unsee the... that though, can you? Now you've seen it, it must be almost painful think... to not implement it again. Yeah, no, I think the trick is you've always got to strive for that. Um, you've got to give yourself enough time. Again, go back to the... To the, the pizza and beer joint in Brentwood. If you're going to hire that general manager, <laughs> let's let's finish by really making sure I don't do it. <laughs> that, that, I'm talking myself out of my equity here. <laughs> that, that general manager um, that you hire. I mean, look, in Brent in Brentwood to hire a decent general manager, you're probably in the sort of high thirties, mid forties um, per year, right? Salary. Now that that. That, with everything else you're putting into that business, is a relatively small amount of money, right? Um, but yet, another classic mistake is, right, eight weeks to go, let's hire the manager. <laughs> and, the, and then we've got to open on time because we start burning rent. Well, what if you don't get the right manager? Well, we'll go with him. He'll be all right. What? Like, that <laughs> is just crazy, right? That, that's the person that's going to look after your 1 million, 1.5 million investment. Um, like, what? Um, so, you know, for, for three, three and a half, four grand a week, um, go early, get the right person, get them involved with, with, you know, everything, make them feel that that they're also giving birth to this business, right? Um, you get them involved with it. Okay. Of course, they're not going to be as productive as they will be once they're up and running. Of course, it'll be a bit of an easy, easy life to start with, but that's an investment. That's like enormous investment, right? Just, you know, don't don't try and trigger it at just the right time where they're going to definitely work their full week or whatever. It's just mental. Um, pay it up front, get it done, get the right person. 
Steve, this has been so fun, so useful. I'll put your email and your LinkedIn in the show notes. I know you've got a full crop of starting customers for now, clients for now. Are you happy for people to reach out to you if they've enjoyed it? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, always, always. Yeah, I mean, look, it's good just to chat to people, right? It's good to know what's going on and a conversation always leads to another conversation and so on and so forth. So always good. So aspiring hospitality founders, if you want to be talked out of losing your life savings, then Steve is your man. And if you decide to still go with it after that, he's still your man. Steve, thank you so much. This has been amazing. No worries. No, great. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.